That's right, folks. We're back with another episode of Baseball Team Autopsies. And this time we're going to delve into the rich history of the Brooklyn Dodgers in this comprehensive installment. Explore the team's origins, its notable players, iconic Ebbets Field, and the enduring legacy left after the team's move to Los Angeles. All that and more on this episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rounders, A History of Baseball in America. It is I, your host, Jeff Lambert. Great to be back with you. Before we get into today's episode, which I'm very excited to share with you, I want to take a moment and review our previous episode and go into some feedback that you provided. I haven't been doing that a lot in previous episodes, but I ask you every time to take part in polls and provide feedback if you're a premium subscriber that I can share. I want to take a minute to tell you what you've been saying about each episode, so consider this a new installment that we're adding. So, in the episode that we released two weeks ago, we talked about the most amazing stadiums that were never built. I asked you which of those concepts you would have liked to have seen become a reality. 50% of you wrote in and said that you would have liked to have seen Labatt Stadium in Montreal for the Expos become the one that you could have visited in real life. 50% of you chose that. I thought that was interesting. So Labatt came in first. The second most popular stadium that you said you wanted to see uh, become a reality was the Boston Dome, that concept of creating that super venue for all of Boston sports teams. And then in third place was the Brooklyn Dome Stadium, which would have been the new home of the Brooklyn Dodgers, the topic that we're going to be discussing today. So you picked the top three from that episode. I wasn't expecting Labatt to come in first. That was a surprise, but hey, uh, it's a good conversation starter. That's for sure. I also want to take a moment and give a chance for our premium subscribers. One of the perks I provide you is being able to tell us, uh, the rest of the audience, what you think about the episodes and give us your opinions and your hot takes. So Jack, one of our premium subscribers, had this to say about the previous episode in relation to, again, the most amazing stadiums that were never built. Jack said, quote, I just got to say, if you ask me as a New Yorker, I would have loved to see that dome stadium in Brooklyn become a reality. Can you imagine being able to see the skyline under a big old transparent dome? That would have been a sight to see, end quote. Jack, I agree that that stadium absolutely would have been ahead of its time. If you didn't have a chance to listen to the last episode, I would encourage you to go back. Some of the concepts that teams came up with for new stadiums was absolutely mind-blowing. And Brooklyn's Dome Stadium uh, really stands at the top in terms of visionary ideas. So thank you for that feedback, Jack. And I also want to take a moment before we start to welcome our new subscribers. Uh, if you're new to the show, we have an email newsletter that you can sign up for. It's a growing community. I'll tell you about some of the perks in a moment. But for those of you that signed up in the past week, I want to say hello. 1964 Redlegs, Gary C., Will2494, Artie Withe, hope I'm saying that right, Artie, Mohair0507, H. Grief, and CKTM Howlett. All of you, thanks for signing up and joining our free tier for the show. You can also join these individuals and get a quick shout out simply by going to the link in the show notes or going to rounders.substack.com. It's free. All you have to do to sign up, you get the weekly newsletter. You'll get this main episode in your inbox 
with pictures and video and additional research links to really get more in-depth with the information. And of course, you also get access to our bonus show, the weekly This Week in Baseball History, where we talk about the main events, births, deaths, free agent signings, major events that happened in baseball history this very week. So all you have to do, again, is go to rounders.substack.com in order to be able to get access to that I would encourage you to take a moment and do so. Really helps be able to, uh, you know, uh, get more in depth with what we're doing here. And I always appreciate the support. So there you have it, folks. Some feedback from the last episode, as well as a hello to those of you that have taken the next step in being able to get involved. So, with that said, let's go ahead and jump into our episode for today. We're going to talk about the Brooklyn Dodgers. How did they come about? What were some of the high points of the franchise? And, of course, what happened to them? It's going to be a fun one. Let's get into it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Brooklyn Dodgers. It's a name that resonates with a really deep nostalgia and reverence among baseball enthusiasts. And I think that's because they were more than just a sports team. I know after completing a lot of research, it really feels like the Dodgers were an early 20th century phenomena, and they transcended the boundaries of the baseball diamonds. They became an integral part of the fabric of the city. They added to the colorful history of the area. They had some really dramatic games and seasons, some groundbreaking decisions that affected baseball's future, and it really left this just undeniable mark Excuse me, on the history of baseball. And Red Barber, who was a legendary Dodgers broadcaster, I think he summed it up perfectly. He once said, quote, the Dodgers were more than just a team. They were a way of life, end quote. So again, I really think that encapsulates the spirit of the Brooklyn Dodgers and that profound impact that they had on sports and society. So kind of an overview of the team, what I'm thinking, I want to jump into their history. So let's go ahead and start talking about the origins and the early years of the team. The team that would come to be known as the Dodgers was formed in 1883 by a real estate magnate and baseball enthusiast named Charles Byrne. And he convinced his brother-in-law and a fellow friend who was a casino operator to start an official baseball club with him. Now, Byrne arranged right from the start to make sure that he had a nice place for his club to play. So he built a grandstand on a lot that was down by 3rd Street, 4th Avenue, 5th Street and 5th Avenue, and he named it Washington Park in honor of our first president, George Washington. So the the location was strategic. He wanted it to be in a place where there would be a lot of pedestrian traffic, people who would want to come and see this baseball club play. And of course, leaning into the patriotic messaging probably didn't hurt either. So Burns Club has a place to play. They're ready to go. And what did they call themselves? Well, they're the Brooklyn Baseball Club to start, but reporters actually gave them their first name, and that name was called the Grays. Now, that seems like a interesting choice, right? Well, there was a reason for it. 
the grays was the color of the team's uniforms. And so that's what was given to them for their first official, uh, you know, press, I guess you could say, association. This early grays team would play other, especially regional based clubs, uh, particularly in New York. And they were successful in the early years. They won a couple league titles with other teams that had joined them. And they did so well that they were actually invited to join a new association that had formed to compete against the National League. And this club, this association, excuse me, was known as the American Association. So the switch over to that league was an interesting one for Brooklyn. They ended up winning the league championship in 1889. And at this time, the club started to be known by a different name than the Grays. And that name was the Bridegrooms. Yeah, stay with me. It's an interesting choice, I know. The reason that name was given is because it was a nod to several team members who had recently married during that offseason. In fact, four of their star players were all married in that same time period. So they became known to the press and the fans as the bridegrooms. Now, sometimes that name could be shortened down to the grooms in the papers, so it was one or the other usually early on. Now, the grooms ended up making a jump from the American Association to the National League. And during that time, I mean, there was a lot of moving around and a lot of mergers happening. And there was a change in ownership that happened with Brooklyn, where we see the original three guys who had started the club take a minority stake because another up and coming baseball enthusiast with a lot of money, Charles Ebbets, became the new majority owner of this Brooklyn club. Now, keep that name in mind because Charles Ebbets is the guy who is the primary owner and decision maker of the Brooklyn Dodgers up until the time they leave. And he started off his ownership with a bang. He's decided to create a super merger where he took players from a recently defunct club called the New York Metropolitans. And he poached a bunch of guys from another group called Brooklyn's Wards Wonders. And then he also got guys from the original Baltimore Orioles National League Club. Combined them all together on this new team to create like this super club at the end of the 1800s. And the name started to change. So they went from the grooms to being referred to in the press as the Brooklyn Superbas or Superbas, but Superbas, I believe, is how it's pronounced. And that was actually inspired by a popular circus act at the time, which was known as the Hanlon Superba. So you have this the super squad that's been formed by Ebbets. And boy, they went on and started off doing great things at the end of the 1800s. They won the National League pennant in 1899 and in 1900. So we're at the turn of the century, and there's already been several names for this club. Like we said, they were known as the Greys. They were known as the Bridegrooms. Now they're known as the Superbas. Now I want to throw in, too, even though we had the Greys, and then we had the Bridegrooms, and now we have the Superbas, there were other names that were used to refer to the Brooklyn Club early on. It was by newspaper. It was by neighborhood, how you referred to this Brooklyn team. And there's no better example of this than a newspaper article that was written before 1932. So the New York Times uh, gave a recap of a game in 1916. And I want you to hear the quote just to show you like how interchangeable the names were for this Brooklyn club. Said, quote, Jimmy Callahan, pilot of the Pirates, did his best to wreck the hopes the Dodgers have of gaining the National League pennant. 
end quote. So we have the name the Dodgers thrown in there, right? But then the article goes on to comment, the only thing that saved the Superbas from being toppled from first place was that the Phillies lost one of the two games played, end quote. So there you have that situation in the same article. This Brooklyn team is called by two different names. So even though these names were often used concurrently at the end of the 1800s and early 1900s, we start to see uh, a unified naming structure pop up around 1914, 1915. And that's when the press started referring to them predominantly as the Brooklyn Robins. And that name was used for the most part from 1914 to 1931. That's how you would see them reported in most newspapers by the press. Now, the official legal name of the club was still the Brooklyn Baseball Club, but the Robins from 1914 to 1931 was the official name of the team, at least in most people's eyes. Now, I want to throw in real quick because I gave you a quote where they referred to them as the Dodgers, but we're not there yet, right? So why would he call them the Dodgers if they hadn't really played around with that name in the late 1800s and early 1900s? Well, that actually started to happen around 1915, 1916, where the club started to be referred to as the Brooklyn Trolley Dodgers by some journalists. And the reason for that, and it's often erroneously reported that the reason the Trolley Dodgers name came through is because, well, people had to dodge trolleys in order to be able to get to the park to be able to see their team play at this new place where they made their home, which was called Eastern Park. It had moved from Washington Park because Washington Park burned down very quickly after it was set up. But that's not actually the case. It was referring to a larger situation that was happening because right outside that new park, Eastern Park, there weren't any street level trolley lines to dodge for pedestrians. But across Brooklyn, there was this very uh, real growing fear across Brooklyn at large that you could get hit by one of these vehicles. And so the city at large became known as a place where you had to dodge trolleys wherever you went. It wasn't just when you were trying to get to the field. It's a small change, but I think it's important. So that's why I'm throwing it in here. So you can add that to the list of other names that were used as reference for the Brooklyn Club. You had the trolley dodgers sprinkled in there as well. And obviously that's going to be something we talk about later on down the line. So if we jump back to when Brooklyn really became known as the Robins predominantly, from about 1914, 1915 to 1931, that was a real mixed bag for Brooklyn fans in terms of success. It started off great under this latest naming convention. Uh, in both 1916 and 1920, the team went to the World Series. They ended up losing both. But hey, you know, good way to start it off. If you fast forward to 1925, there was a big shakeup in the club. Charles Ebbets, the guy that I had mentioned who bought the majority stake in the team, he ended up dying. And all of a sudden, Brooklyn was thrown into a bit of a disarray because the vice president ended up dying within a week of Charles Ebbets. And so the team decided to name the manager at the time, the club's manager, Wilbert Robinson, to become the new team president while he's still the manager. So all of a sudden, Robinson has to worry about what's going on both on and off the field. And during that time, so we're talking about from 1925 till about 1931, that was a, a tough stretch for Brooklyn, mainly because of the fact that there was just 
there wasn't really any real leadership, focused leadership, because of the manager's split duties. And the press actually gave them another name during this time where they were often, I think, fondly referred to as the Daffiness Boys. And they were giving this name because they were often distracted. They made a lot of errors on the field. They were known as just being not a great team. So again, they were called the Daffiness Boys, or you could shorten that to the Daffy Boys, which was a, another shortened nickname that they gave this club in the mid to later part of the 1920s. And if I can sum up the Daffy Boys era for you, I guess in one example, there was a situation, believe it or not, where you had three players for the Dodgers end up on third base at the same time. Yes, that's right. It's often referred to as the tripling into a triple play moment for this club. Crazy, huh? So there was a joke that was often told amongst Dodgers fan during the 1920s, and it went like this, quote, the Dodgers have three men on base. Oh, yeah? Which base? End quote. So there you have it, folks. But better times are on the way because we get to the end of the 1920s. Robinson, the guy who had to assume both the presidency and managing the club, ends up retiring. A new manager is brought on, and it's time for a name change. You might guess what that's going to be. Let's talk about it. Welcome to the off-season of 1931. The Robins finally shed their inept manager, Wilbert Robinson, also team president. It's time to go through a change, a transformation. A gentleman named Max Carey was named the new team president, and he was a very lively individual to take over the club. He knew very well that the team did not have a great reputation amongst its fans in Brooklyn. As a matter of fact, there was a lovable nickname outside of the Daffy Boys that was often used to refer to this club, and that was Dem Bums, D-E-M Bums. Yes, that's right. So the joke would often be, again, how did the Bums do today? They wouldn't even refer to them as the Robins or the Brooklyn team. That's how bad it had gotten. So all of a sudden, Max Carey comes on, and he decides, along with ownership, we got to change the name of the club. One of the popular early front runners was to name the team the Brooklyn Canaries. I think for two reasons. Number one, they were called the Robins up until this point. So you've got kind of a bird change. But also you have Max Carey, who's the new president of the club. And of course, his full name was actually Canarius. So you have this, uh, I guess, this nod to the new leadership of naming them after them. But what won out was to go back and choose a name that they had been referred to in the past and shorten a little bit. And we had the Brooklyn Dodgers officially return as the name for the club. Now, even with the name change, there were a lot of people in the National League that didn't think that this was going to change anything. As a matter of fact, Brooklyn's main rival, the New York Giants, the Crosstown New York Giants, there was an interview after the name change where the press actually went up and asked player manager at the time for the Giants, Bill Terry, what he thought about the Dodgers' chances in the coming pennant race and season. And he had this to say, quote, is Brooklyn still in the league? End quote. So that's the sentiment that we see them stepping into. And the team immediately started making moves to make themselves competitive. They brought back Casey Stengel, the great Casey Stengel, to manage the Brooklyn Dodgers for the 1932 season. He had actually played for the Brooklyn club back in the 1910s. So you've got a big name in the dugout. 
this team is ready to make some noise. And the Brooklyn Dodgers played their first game officially under that name on August 26, 1939 at Ebbets Field. And they won 6-1 to one over the Cincinnati Reds. From 1932 to 1946, the Dodgers were a team that were mostly mediocre in terms of how they performed in most seasons. There were some ups, there were some downs, but there were no hardware moments to speak of during this stretch. But there was such a love for the club under this new name and the exciting players that they started to bring in that they really, I think, captured people's hearts during this time period and the team's broadcaster red barber once stated in an interview that quote even when the dodgers lost they were never dull end quote i thought that was an interesting way to sum up this period in brooklyn's history so let's go ahead and jump into the golden era 1947 to about 1957 that's when the dodgers hit their stride as the powerhouse that we often remember them as so as we get into the 1940s, that marked the beginning of a golden era for the Brooklyn Dodgers. They were under the guidance of Leo DeRocher and later Burt Schotten, and both of these guys helped the team emerge as a powerhouse in the National League. To illustrate that for you, the Dodgers won their first two National League pennants in 21 years in 1941, and that set the stage for a series of really classic World Series confrontations against the New York Yankees that decade. But probably the most significant event of this era from 1947 to 1957, and perhaps in the history of baseball, was the signing of Jackie Robinson in 1945. At that time, the president and general manager of the club, who was a gentleman named Branch Rickey, for those of you, I mean, even if you're a casual baseball fan, you've heard of Branch Rickey, he's going to get his own episode at some point. Fascinating individual. He makes a decision to sign Jackie Robinson, who became the first African-American to play in the major leagues. And this happened in 1947. And of course, despite the intense prejudice and abuse, Jackie Robinson let his performance on the field, excuse me, speak for why he should be there. And he hit 297 scored 125 runs, and he stole 29 bases in his first season with the Dodgers. And that earned him the first ever Major League Rookie of the Year award. So Robinson signing, it wasn't just a landmark moment for the Dodgers, but the Dodgers helped bring in, I think, a big watershed moment for baseball and American society as a whole, uh, a catalyst for the breakdown of segregation in society. And Branch Rickey himself said once, quote, I'm looking for a ball player with enough guts not to fight back, end quote. And he found that in Jackie Robinson, because it was going to take someone who could be willing to take that abuse from city to city, from other teams, from his own teammates, and be able to show that he belonged there. And Jackie was the guy to do it, right? So he found, I mean, Jackie Robinson excelled on the field. He had that courage. He had that resilience. He was able to withstand those pressures of breaking baseball's color line. And that's obviously why we celebrate him as baseball fans and why the MLB has his name retired by all teams and all stadiums, right? So the 1940s were good to the Dodgers. Listen to some of the names that walked through during this decade. You had Jackie Robinson, obviously. You had Pee Wee Reese. You had Gil Hodges all in the same infield. You had Duke Snyder and Carl Farilla in the outfield. And, of course, you had the great Roy Campanella behind the plate. 
on the pitcher on the pitching staff, you had Don Newcomb, you had Preacher Rowe, you had Carl Erskine. I mean, my goodness, the team did great. So I mentioned that they won in 1941. They also won the National League pennant in 1947 and 1949. The good times kept going into the 1950s. They won in 1952 and 1953. But they fell to the New York Yankees in all five of those subsequent World Series matches. But they represented the National League several times during that decade. Uh, and I guess, you know, being, you know, someone who grew up watching the Buffalo Bills constantly making it to the Super Bowl and not being able to close it out, the Dodgers went through that period as well, of course. And there was a common pattern to the suffering fans of Brooklyn, where every time it happened, they would tell each other, wait till next year. And that became an unofficial Dodgers slogan during this time. The golden era probably marks its end at the 1951 season, where the Dodgers fell victim to one of the largest collapses in the history of baseball. So in August of 1951, Brooklyn led the National League by 13 and a half games, and the closest team to them was their rival, the New York Giants. The Dodgers ended up going 26 and 22 from that point on until the end of the season. And the Giants decided to go on an absolute tear and they won 37 of their final 44 games, including the last seven games of the season. So at the end of the season, the Dodgers and the Giants were tied for first place. And that meant a three game playoff for the pennant. So this was one for the ages, folks. The Giants ended up winning game one. It was a great game. They won three to one. In game two, they won again, though. Ten to nothing. Blew them out of the water completely. And that was it for Brooklyn. And unfortunately, after that 1951 season, we start to see the core of the Dodgers really age out. And it goes downhill from there in terms of record. And then, of course, we start running into the issues with getting a new stadium and fighting with city officials and the threatening of the move to the West Coast. We're going to get to all that in a second. But if we were to mark the high point of the Dodgers, it would have been in the 1940s and then the early 1950s with that 1951 collapse was really it, unfortunately, for the club in terms of their prominence being at the top of the sport. As with other team autopsies, I would be remiss if I didn't stop to talk about two specific things about this team, and that would be the stadium in which they played, and then of course talking about what they looked like, the logos and the uniforms. So let's jump into those. Let's start off with the home of the Dodgers, Ebbets Field. Well, I should say the primary home of the Dodgers, right? Because we talked about the fact that they played in Washington Park, burned down, they played in Eastern Park. They ended up making the move to Ebbets Field once Charles Ebbets took over the team in 1915-1916 uh, time. So this stadium was really a wonder of the era. It was constructed on a plot of land called Pigtown in Brooklyn. And the reason it was called that because that's where the garbage dump was in the area. The land was so undesirable that it really was not hard for Ebbets to claim and be able to get for a pretty cheap price, but he saw the potential in the location and he purchased all the parcels of land in the area and he decided, you know what, we're going to start building a ballpark. So Ebbets Field was constructed and it was known to fans at the time for being a very cozy and intimate venue to be able to watch a game. 
The seating capacity was about 35,000 people for night games, and they would open it up to slightly more people in the grandstands for day games. And the stadium was very unique in its design. It had a short right field wall, but it had a really deep left field wall. So it was challenging for right-handed hitters, but if you were a lefty, that was your time to shine, right? Now, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but Ebbets Field was great when it was built. Remember, 1915, 1916, we start to see it being used, but it wasn't kept up very well, unfortunately. Once we get to the 1950s, it had fallen into a pretty severe state of disrepair, and Ebbets knew that it was time to be able to replace this stadium, and we're going to get to talking about why that was a major catalyst for the move in a second, but that's Ebbets Field, very uh, uh, romantically known in terms of baseball parks during this part of baseball's history. So let's jump in and talk about the evolution of the Dodgers logos and uniforms. What did they look like if you went to see the team during this time? Well, both their logos and uniforms, just like the team name, evolved significantly. And I think that reflects the team's dynamic history, too, and their changing identity, which was just, you know, obviously something from the beginning that stuck with them for most of their history. So beginning in 1899, we saw several different variations of a B beyond the official team name. And it changed often. So the first one was a red B that was in Gothic font that was used on both the chest and the hat. The font was changed in 1902 and the color was changed to blue. And then the font was changed again in 1909 to a simpler font. And then in 1911, that blue B was surrounded by a diamond mimicking base paths. And they overlapped each other at the corners for a pretty interesting I think, graphic. And that stayed until 1918 when they decided to clean up the diamonds so the lines didn't intersect, so it would look like a clean diamond all the way around. Now, in 1932, when the team officially adopted the name the Dodgers, they unveiled this Gothic-style letter B, and they got rid of the diamond. And that letter took on different fonts and colors up until 1938, when the iconic logo most of us know today was unveiled. Now, we saw some other variations that happened throughout the Dodgers history. There was a time where the logo actually featured the full name, Dodgers, and it had long tails from the S that goes under the other letters, and that came into existence for a while. And then, of course, we have the flying baseball that was added to the background seven years later. It's one that we know today that Los Angeles obviously uses. So that's the logo. Changed a lot throughout their history. And the uniforms also had significant changes over the years. If you look at the early clubs at the end of the 1800s, they had those classic collared uniforms that you would see a lot of uh, clubs wear. And then you would also see the high socks. And then the early jerseys were neat because they had the word Brooklyn across the chest. Looks really snappy, I think. My favorite would be the 1910 uniform because it had a B and a diamond logo on the left sleeve and the word Brooklyn written vertically down the middle of the shirt. I think it looks pretty snappy. Again, another reason for you to sign up for the email so you can see what I'm talking about. I'll make sure to include a picture picture of that. So uh, in my opinion, I think the first uniform for the team under the Dodgers name was pretty bad. So both sleeves had a large B and then the word Dodgers across the chest was there. And then it had pinstripes behind the name Dodgers. It's not a good look, I think. But later versions ended up dropping the letters on the sleeves. They added a red outline around the Brooklyn across the chest. It started to get better. (laughs) But that first iteration is pretty bad, in my opinion. So to me, 
I think the evolution of both the logo and the uniforms very closely mimics what we saw with the team's naming conventions. They went through a lot of different variations before they settled on something, but the final version was iconic, right? And that's what we saw in the look and the name. They really mimicked each other in both ways. So now that I've given you hopefully a visual of what they looked like and we talked about where they played their games, let's get to the end of our story. And that's the move out of Brooklyn. What caused that? So the decision to move from Brooklyn to Los Angeles, the current home of the Dodgers, it was a very complex combination of factors that all came together to cause this team who really was one of the best known clubs in baseball to pull up stakes and move. I mean, why, why would you do that? Well, it started off with the team getting a new owner, Walter O'Malley. He became the majority owner of the Dodgers in 1950. And he saw the state of Ebbets Field, knew it was a dump and wanted to build a more modern stadium for his team in Brooklyn. He saw the revenue potential there because the name was so well known. Well, He submitted plans for a new ballpark, which we talked about last episode, the Brooklyn Dome, right? And there was a battle that ensued between the ownership of the Dodgers and the city of Brooklyn. So you have O'Malley on one side. And on the other side, you have this guy named Robert Moses, who was the city planner for the city of Brooklyn. And they didn't get along at all, these two. And it came down to the site that O'Malley wanted to build his new stadium on. That area was already marked for another construction project, and Robert Moses refused to give that land to O'Malley to be able to build this new ballpark. And he said, well, I don't want you to have this space, but you can have this space or this space. And O'Malley dug his heels in and said, no, this is where I want to build the new stadium. Let me have it. Now, I looked everywhere to see why Moses was so particular about allowing, or not allowing, I should say, O'Malley to have this plot. Because from what I could see, it was marked for a train station where the new ballpark was going to be. So I have to imagine there must have been some financial kickbacks maybe Moses was expecting. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I digress from that point. But really the, the focus here is you had a gridlock between the city and O'Malley, the owner, in terms of where am I going to get land for a new stadium. And in the meantime, Los Angeles slips into the DMs bit there and says, hey, O'Malley. How would you like to move your team to beautiful Los Angeles? We will give you land for a new stadium. We are going to help you fund it. And all you have to do is sign here on the dotted line. Stop fighting with the city officials in Brooklyn. Come out to the West Coast. It's beautiful out here. The revenue potential is a lot better. Well, O'Malley decided after looking at this and getting no traction with Brooklyn city officials that "Ah, this is what's best for me and my investment. So in October 1957, the announcement came out that the Brooklyn Dodgers were moving to Los Angeles. And this announcement was, I think, a mix of shock, of disappointment, of anger. And the city of Brooklyn really just, I mean, rose up. They were upset. This is their team that's about to move across the country. And articles and articles, it was interesting reading some of the feedback. One that jumped out to me, uh, there was an article in the New York Times where they were interviewing fans about how they felt about the move. And one fan said, quote, when the Dodgers leave Brooklyn, a part of Brooklyn will die, end quote. I thought that was really powerful. So in Brooklyn, we see them watch their team go to the West Coast. It feels like something that could have been avoided so easily, right? But 
the end of the Brooklyn Dodgers came down to stadium disagreements and another city slipping in and making a superior superior offer, excuse me, that the owner could not refuse. And that marked the end of the Brooklyn Dodgers. So how should we remember this club? I think this is important. We talk about the legacy of these teams and what, what marks do they still leave today? I mean, there's a lot. Let's go through a couple of them. Number one, I think, obviously, Brooklyn was the club that broke the color barrier in professional baseball. The Dodgers are known for that. They signed the first African-American player to an MLB contract. That was Jackie Robinson in 1947. You can thank Branch Rickey for that. I mean, this was a monumental step in the civil rights movement. It challenged that deep-seated racial segregation that was existent in American society and, unfortunately, in baseball during this time. And then you had the greatness of Jackie Robinson uh, come to fruition in his time as a Brooklyn Dodger. His impact on the game and society, I mean, it extends throughout Dodgers history during this time period. And we celebrate Jackie Robinson Day every day on April 15th. When we go to the park, like I said, we see his number 42 retired. That was his time in a Brooklyn uniform. And Brooklyn was the team that was willing to take that step to sign him. And we think about other legacies of the Dodgers. You got to look at Roy Campanella, too. I mean, this guy was not only someone who stood by Jackie Robinson, what a lot of his own teammates wouldn't. He is the guy who was just the steady star for the Dodgers during their great run. He played from 1948 to 1957 with Brooklyn, became the face of the club. He won three National League MVP awards. He helped them win their first World Series title. I mean, this is the guy who was the rock of the club, I think, during the good years. So you got to remember him. I think the Dodgers also should be remembered for a really unique community connection that they made. I mean, there was deep affection for this team, especially early on. So, you know, like I said, we had that playful uh, name of being, you know, calling the team, you know, them bums. And you see the local fans really tie in and really love this club. And they were really broken when they left. And I don't think every team had that kind of relationship with their fans that Brooklyn had. They may have been, I think, one of the deepest seated for the fans that supported them. And I think that was best illustrated by Ken Burns in his documentary, uh, Baseball and Illustrated History. Uh, there was a quote that stuck out to me that said, uh, quote, no fans were more noisily critical of their own players than Brooklyn's, and none were more fiercely loyal once play began, end quote. So that community connection, I think, is really important. The Dodgers popularized that and made, you know, being so attached to your team something that really, really mattered. The Dodgers also have a lasting cultural impact that we have to pay attention to. You look at a lot of the clubs that folded in the early to mid-1900s, you don't see them in a lot of pop culture, but you see the Dodgers still around today. In 2013, you had the movie 42, which was about Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier. That showcases the Dodgers in depth. There have been several books that have been written about the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, there was a memoir from Roger Kahn called The Boys of Summer, very popular when it was released. Even to this day, if you go to Brooklyn, even if you're walking around, I mean, you still see the Brooklyn Dodgers logo, that stylized B on hats, on shirts. You don't really see that for a lot of other clubs that folded. People loved the Brooklyn Dodgers and their, their, resilience, I think, is iconic in the sense that it shows just how popular and important they are to the game of baseball. So if I have to summarize overall, I think the Dodgers legacy is obviously one that 
is pioneering in terms of racial integration in the sport, them achieving remarkable success on the field, them forming a unique bond with their community. All those things I think are things we need to remember when we talk about the legacy of this team. So there you have it, folks, the story of the Brooklyn Dodgers. I've really enjoyed going through this with you. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I had researching it. So until next time, I hope you have a great week. And remember, there are only two seasons, winter and baseball.